So Matthew 10, verses 16 through 33. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. For when they deliver you over, uh, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more of more value than many sparrows. Verse 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. A lot to cover here, Lord, but I know that you are faithful. I thank you that you not only are speaking through me, it's not about me, it's about your spirit speaking, but you also control the ears and the hearts of the people listening. And I pray that this morning we would have confidence in that, that we would open ourselves up to hear what you have to say to us individually and as a church this morning. Thank you for the technology to broadcast your word in this way, and I pray that you would uh, hold our attention mine included, to the word that we're about to hear. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, uh, context. So here in Matthew 10, we observe Jesus being a leader. Uh, one of my favorite leadership books is by Ken Blanchard. It's called Lead Like Jesus. And uh, you, some of you in the business world may know Ken Blanchard. He, for a long time, uh, was a leadership, business leadership guy, and he was not a Christian. And uh, when he became a Christian later in life, he looked back at all of his leadership teaching and realized, my goodness, Jesus exhibited all these things. So what he does in Lead Like Jesus is he goes through all these principles and shows how Jesus demonstrates them. And so really what we have here in Matthew 10, 16-33, is Jesus is acting as a coach. He's acting as a coach. What he's been doing is going about teaching and healing. We've seen a few of these passages and now, while he's still with them, Jesus is training his disciples to do the same. He won't always be with them. In fact, it's their job after he leaves, ascends back to the Father, to continue his ministry. So while he's with them, he's going to send them out on this short-term mission trip. That's what he's doing. 
And so uh, in verses uh, 5 through 15 of chapter 10, he gives them very specific instructions that really only deal with them. It's like, hey, how many coats to bring and things like that. Uh, It's the packing list for those parents who've sent their kids on mission trips. Uh, But then in verses 16 through 33, he, he broadens his teaching, broadens his coaching, and this really is for all disciples for all time. Uh, What he does first, if we look back to Matthew 9, is he paints a target, if you will, for his disciples. And so in Matthew 9, 35-38, he gives them the why and the who of their mission. He says this, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, and and listen to this, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's who. He's lo- that's, that's the who. He's looking out and, and the people that are not following Him, that do not accept His message. He has compassion on them. He sees that they are lost. And then He says to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And so what He's doing is He's training the disciples what it means to go out into the harvest to to go out to those who are harassed and helpless, and why they ought to do it, and what they ought to do. And so what's the target? They need to labor for the harvest out of a heart of compassion. That's what he's asked his disciples to do. That's what he's asking all disciples to do. And so as we look at the instructions that he gives in Matthew 10, I mean, there's a, a dozen different ways we could have broken this passage down. But really what stood out to me is what this passage says about the heart of human beings, the heart of man, we'll call it. What does this passage say about the hearts of human beings that don't love Jesus, the hearts of human beings that do love Jesus, and it gives an answer to the predicament that they find themselves in. A little spoiler alert there. So let's get let's going. Let's not pull any punches. What does this passage say? Let's start generally about the heart of man. Every man, every woman, every person born. It says in this passage, the heart of man hates God. The heart of man hates God. Well, how do you get that? Look at the first part of verse 16. It explains it right there. Jesus says to his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now that phrase says as much about us as it does the world, but it says something about the world. It says something about the heart of the world, the heart of men, the heart of humanity. So let's think about what this means. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. This word wolves... Uh, is the same as us. It's this pack of wild, ravenous dogs that hunt together. And they're, they're, it's almost like their hunger is insatiable. And so Jesus is saying, as you go out and share my word, you're as if a sheep has wandered into the den of the wolf. It's not a good situation for the sheep. And so one of the um, uh, commentators this week pointed out that this mission trip that the, the disciples go on, Uh, actually ends very positively. They come back excited. We healed and we cast out demons and people listened. And so this really is shows us that this message is for later on, for all disciples. Now, if you read Acts, you know that the disciples hit this ideal head on. But the idea here is that as the, the family of God, as the disciples of Jesus go out, those who hate the message of Christ won't just walk away from it, They want to tear Jesus and his followers to shreds like a pack of wolves. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, I was thinking of an example where we could see this, and I immediately was drawn to the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. So Lazarus really died. They buried him. He was in the tomb for several days. 
and Jesus goes and raises him from the dead. He actually hops out of the grave in his grave clothes. There's no question about what happened. But the reaction of the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the, those who were the religious leaders of the time, their reaction to Jesus, but also their reaction to Lazarus really shows us this, this idea of wolves and sheep in action. So let's talk about, we'll talk about Jesus later on. I'll come back to this passage in a few moments. But let's see their response to Lazarus, the one that Jesus raised from the dead. This is from John 12, verses 10 and 11. So the chief priests made plans. See if you can make this make sense. To put Lazarus, Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You see what's happening? Jesus did something miraculous for his friend. And what was on the mind of the chief priest? we got to do away with Lazarus. We need to destroy Lazarus because he is, he is a, a symbol of what Jesus stands for. And they would not have it. Isaiah 59, the prophet says, He who departs from evil makes himself a prey makes himself a prey, P-R-E-Y. That was then. Jesus knew that was how it would go then. Jesus knew that that's what the attitude of the world was towards his message. That's the attitude of the world towards his message even now. The world still hunts in packs. The world still hunts in packs. When we, church, turn away from the values of the world, when we come with the message of Jesus, they want to tear his people to shreds. We become a target. We're sheep among wolves. We're a sweet treat to the appetite of the wolves. Charles Simeon says, this is how the people of God have been treated by the people of the world since Cain and Abel. Isn't that interesting? What was the, the, the beef between Cain and Abel? Cain was upset that God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not his. And so what did he do? He killed Abel. That's how it's always been. And so here we have this ideal that the world hates the message of God. They hate Jesus and what he stands for. And so the question then is, well, what should we expect out of that? What should we expect in our lives because of this hatred? And so the message of rescue and healing that's brought by Jesus, that should be brought by us to the world, is met with resistance. It's met with resistance. There's three types of resistance that Jesus lists here. I'm going to fly through them rather quickly. The first type of resistance described by Jesus is in verses 17 and 18, and I labeled it official resistance. Look at this. Beware of men. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Church, this, this might be hard to hear, this might be easy to hear, it might be relieving to hear, it might be disconcerting to hear, but listen, the government, worldly government, will always in some way be against the followers of Christ. Always. I had someone very dear to me ask me a question the other day, and I won't assume their motivation, but they asked genuinely, and I tried to give an answer, I don't think it was a very good one, but they asked me, what will things be like under our new president? Uh, they, they just asked that question. And so uh, I, I gave some kind of answer, but, but here's my official answer from Scripture, from this passage. Here's my answer to that question. Maybe you're asking that question even now. The answer from Scripture, from Jesus, is it will be just like it's always been for Christians since Jesus was here and he, he ascended to the Father. That's what it will be like. It's never been better or worse. It's always been sheep among wolves. 
R.T. France, I think, says it really well. He says, sheep in the midst of wolves are in constant danger. They have no capacity for self-defense. They depend on the shepherd. The principle is relevant to Christians in all ages who must live and witness in a hostile world. That's what our world is. He finishes by saying, Jesus did not envision his people as a power group. (laughs) He did not envision us as the majority. He did not envision us as the ones who are in charge. We are sheep amongst wolves. Any illusion of power that we think we've had is just that, an illusion. Jesus never intended for us to be in charge. And in some sense, what can we expect? As long as we carry the message of Jesus, the regime that that we are under, no matter where you live or what century you live in, will not really be for you. That's the answer. Expect official resistance. He also says to expect what I call familiar resistance. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, children will rise against his parents and have them put to death. Now, some of you have experienced this more than others. Uh, But the the idea here is that when the gospel, the message of Christ, becomes distasteful to someone in your family, it can cause this explosive rift. Explosive rift. Deep hatred. Deep division. This was true then, it's true now, and some of you are saying, and how? I mean, you're experiencing it, you're living it right now. You see the division of being a believer and having someone in your immediate or even extended family who rejects it. There's a strange comfort in verse 22. And again, you'll know what I mean when I read it. And Jesus says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. So the strange comfort is is that it's not you, really. It's not you and your personality or you and your personhood. No, the the anger and the hatred and and that, that division that has occurred, it's really because of Jesus. That's the reason there's division. So we should expect official resistance, We should expect familiar resistance. We should also expect communal resistance. Verse 23, And when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This Son of Man coming uh, reference refers to, uh, there's a lot of different opinions, but the one that makes the most sense to me uh, is the, the, the resurrection of Jesus when Jesus is revealed to be this person that he is referred to, the Son of Man. And what he's saying to the disciples is you won't even finish uh, evangelizing Israel before that happens. But the point here is this. At times, adult from from childhood all the way to being an adult, we all experience this at one time or another. At times, what? We are the only one in the place we find ourselves that truly hold to the belief in Jesus Christ. That happens all the time. So, so teenagers, as you think about where you go to school and maybe your, your circle of friends, you're the only one that's a Christian. This, unfortunately, doesn't end at high school. It's something that goes on, and we should actually expect to be, at times, the only person standing there believing in Jesus and having to, to make choices in that kind of resistance. And so we see official resistance, familiar resistance, communal resistance. The question then, what came to my mind was, what is the world so upset about? The message of Jesus is one of hope and love and healing and rescue. And I think we see what they're so upset about in verses 24 and 25. Listen to the, the, the language here. A disciple is not above his teacher, a, a servant above his master. You See the, the hierarchy that Jesus is putting forth? 
Verse 25, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, it's a pretty cool name. If, you have a, if you're pregnant, Beelzebul, there you go. It's an option for you. How much more will they malign the house, those in the household? Um, listen, to those who are of the world, to those who are not children of God, Jesus Christ is their worst nightmare. Their worst nightmare. Why? Because when we come to Jesus for salvation, He he is our Lord. He is our Master. Uh, Back to the Lazarus story. Here's the chief priest and the Pharisees' reaction to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So the chief priest, this is John 11, 47 and 48. The chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Do you see what's happening? They're admitting we see his power. We understand who he is. But then it goes on. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What is their concern? It's their own kingdom. Their concern is what they have, the power they have, the things they have, the things they love most. We think as Christians, they would see a man hop out of the grave and it would be like, my goodness, this is truly someone from God. No, instead, what are the Pharisees and the, and the scribes saying? I like what I have. I don't want to lose it. Hatred toward God in the gospel is a self-seeking hatred. It's self-seeking. And so, if you boil it down, anyone you know, anyone you love, anyone in your life who has reasons that they don't believe in Jesus Christ I want to just make it simple. The baseline, the refusal to submit is based on the idea that they would have to submit themselves to someone else. That's the base, that's the very base foundational principle. Every reason for disbelief is a refusal to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, in case Christians we think we're better than that, every sin we commit. Every sin I commit, what is it in the moment? It's a refusal, a momentary refusal to bend our knee to the will of Jesus Christ. It's saying, you know what? (laughs) You're not my master. I'm my master. I know best. I want this. This is in the heart of all men. So where does this leave us on on this idea that, that, that the heart of man hates God? Church, this should drive us to compassion. Remember the target that Jesus painted for his disciples. I'll read it so I don't have to mess it up as I paraphrase it. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Listen, as sheep, we should hurt for the wolves. We should hurt for the wolves. Our compassion should send us out as sheep amongst wolves to share that message that many will hate. This is the reason we labor in the fields and pray for more laborers. And so if you're going to write this something down, write this down. The hateful hearts of men are not obstacles to us. The hateful hearts of men are not obstacles to us. They're opportunities for us, church. They're opportunities for us. Because you see, amongst those hearts are many who are ready to hear the good news of the gospel. Listen to what Jesus says. Again, back to Matthew 9. Pray, uh, the harvest is plentiful. Don't mind the mixed metaphors. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers 
are few. What does Jesus mean by that? There are many out there who are ready to hear the hope of Jesus Christ. And so this reality that, that, that men at their base level, uh, humans at their base level hate God, it's not for us to be like, whoa, that's scary. No, it's an opportunity for us. It should break our hearts and send us out in compassion. And so we see from this passage, it speaks to the heart of men. But it also speaks, uh, honestly reveals the shortcomings in the hearts of Christians as well. And so if we look at this passage, we go back through, we try to pick these points out. What we learn is the heart of the disciple, uh, well, let's be honest, we've got issues. Christians have issues. We're going to do for the next few minutes is just look at the commands that Jesus gives his disciples. These commands speak to the struggles of the disciples, the struggle of us. As he gives these commands or these coaxes, what he's saying is, here's an indictment on you, and I'm telling you to do something different. So let's take a look at them. First, we have this very unique statement in verse 16, be as wise, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That's something you hear every day, I'm sure. What does it mean, wise as serpents? Think about the other day I was coming into the office, I guess this was before it got real cold, and there was a snake by the door of my office, and I'm sure if you rewind long enough, you'll see me ah, you know, outside my office. But what happened is as soon as I approached it, what did he do? He just hightailed it, he ran. He didn't want anything to do with me. Look at me, come on, I'm super scary to snakes, apparently. So what does this mean? It means avoid conflict, stay icy. Don't, don't run headlong into danger. The difference between a serpent and a dove is a dove is kind of dopey, right? They, you can actually sneak up on them, all right? And so a snake is it's ready, it's, it's poised to run away. And so uh, when, when it uses the word wise, it means exudes common sense and practical matters. Don't expose yourself to unnecessary conflict is what Jesus is saying. You're going to have enough of it as it is. Don't run headlong into things you know they are going to be major conflicts, big problems. This even includes the idea of running towards evil, participating in evil. And then we get innocent as a dove. What, what, what he's trying to say is he's like, he's saying the, the, a serpent has an edge. It's kind of paranoid. It may, it may be poisonous, right? Um, and what he's saying is don't just be like a serpent. Also be gentle and generous. Along with this idea that you should run away from danger, you should also do good. Be kind. And so one scholar, much more succinct than me, avoid evil, do good. Avoid evil, do good. As wise, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. What is the indictment on our hearts? If we're honest, we actually like to reverse this. We like to be as, uh, as wise as doves and as innocent as serpents. What we like to do is know as little as possible about what God wants us to do. We, we want to just kind of be, whatever, okay, living life, enjoying it, and we want to actually get as close to danger as possible. That's what we want to do. Instead of running away from sin and running away from evil and avoiding conflict and doing good and knowing what God wants and being loving and compassionate, we want to reverse those two things. We want to know as little as possible about God and get away with as much as possible in our sinful desires. And so Jesus is saying, Disciple, reverse that. Come back to me. He's calling us to himself. He's calling us to a life of, of mixed, mixed with common sense, holiness, and compassion. That's what this phrase means. 
He goes on, next verse, Beware of men. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. One way to, to, to look at this command is do not expect too much from mankind. Do not expect too much from mankind. What's the indictment? We tend to put our trust in people, don't we? We tend to put our trust in people. You may be tired of hearing about this, but it's fresh. Think about the last of political season that we're kind of still in. Think about this. Either you or many people you know, both sides of the aisle, what do they do? They put too much hope in their candidates. Too much. Too much hope. And the reality, Jesus knows this about us, what do we do? We look more regularly to the elected officials for our protection than we do to Jesus Christ. We hope they elect the right people or they, they appoint the right people. We hope they pass the right laws or do the right thing. Listen, don't put your hope in men. Look to Jesus Christ. And Jesus, what he knows about the hearts of his disciples, what he knows about the hearts of us, church, is that we look to men too much. And he, he's calling us back to himself. Trust in Jesus is what he's saying. That's the command. We'll keep moving. Verse 19, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you're to, you're to say. Don't be anxious in regard to the words you say. What is one of the reasons we don't share the gospel with folks? I hear this often. I use this excuse myself. Why don't we share the gospel? Well, I just don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. It's okay to not know what to say. <laughs> That's the whole point here. Don't be anxious about it. The key here is to let go of your fear. Trust Jesus. Why? Because God controls both sides of the conversation. Prayerfully say something. Prayerfully say something. Now, I use the, the weirdo, creepy joke of, have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Like that, If that's all you can get out, guess what? God will use it. God will use it. So we must not be anxious about what we say as we go out and share this message, even as sheep amongst wolves. Jesus is calling us to trust in Him. The next command, flee to the next is what it says. He's talking about, again, when, you, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Leon Morris, uh, one of the scholars I've been reading, he says, this is the law against flogging a dead horse. <laughs> this is, is that graphic? Sure. But is it clear? Absolutely. What Jesus knows about us, what's the indictment? Jesus knows that we have this proclivity to give up. Ah, that was hard. Ah, I'm not going to do that anymore. And we have, a, we have a commitment to useless things. Think about all the shows you've ever binge-watched. We can commit to useless things. Both of these are in view here as Jesus is giving this flee to the next command about evangelism. And so what he's saying is, listen, don't grow discouraged and give up so easily. Don't do that. Commit yourselves to sharing the gospel, but also don't waste your time in one place. If the gospel has been shared and rejected, it doesn't mean you have to stop being that person's friend. Absolutely be their friend. But there is a, har a harvest that is plentiful and the laborers are few. So we must keep moving. We must keep sharing with more and more folks. Just a couple more commands. One more, in fact. He makes it three times. Do not fear. Verses 26, 28, and 31. Jesus says three times in this passage, do not fear. Uh, this week, um, one evening this week, I had four to five dreams in one night that all addressed a deep fear in my heart. I won't share what they are, but like, I mean, I woke up like, oh my goodness, I think that's not true, right? Listen, we all have fear. We have fear, don't we? 
We have fear. We have deep fears. Deep fears that affect our discipleship. Deep fears that affect how we share the Gospel. Jesus knows that. He knows that we fear hardship. We fear persecution. We even fear death. And what He says, we're going to look at the reasons here in a moment. He says, don't be scared. Do not fear. I actually have one more command from the passage. Verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Very simply, Jesus is telling His disciples to not conceal their Christianity. Don't conceal it. I think about Peter as he's sitting around the fire with those who have arrested Jesus and this little girl recognizes him. What did he do? He concealed it. I don't know him. I never knew him. And so with us, why do we conceal our Christianity? We, we, feel other, we fear others knowing and judging us. Oh, you're, that's a weirdo, right? We, we fear that we'll lose friendships. What's Jesus' answer? Be out with it. Be out with it. Pro, what I tell you in your heart, what you know to be true, proclaim it from the housetop. His reasoning here is that every, everything will be revealed anyway. And so what I, what I hope you understand here is that we have kind of a lot of difficult ideas. We see that the heart of man hates God at its base level. We see that the Christian heart is not perfect. It's not fully redeemed. It has lots of issues. Jesus is still guiding us along. And, and what's great is that this passage gives us comfort. This passage gives us a solution. And the solution, very simply, is the work of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what the solution that Jesus gives His disciples, that He gives us. Now let's handle these chronologically. First, we see the God, God the Holy Spirit at work. Verse 19, Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you will say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speaks, but who? The Spirit of your Father speaking through you. What is the answer to anxiety when facing official resistance in the passage? It's the fact that the Spirit will speak through you. Therefore, do not be anxious. Listen, Reformed people, we love, we love knowledge. We do. We love it. We love study. We love learning. And it's good to do that. But is the answer in the moment when, when the disciples will face a governor or an official to, to, to tap into the resources of study? No, it's to rely on the Holy Spirit. Rely on the Holy Spirit. We must abandon the idea that true knowledge only comes through study. We must rely more and more and more and, in, and, and enfold the Holy Spirit back into our lives. To be truly reformed and really have a desire to know, we must put the Holy Spirit at the center of our lives, not as a doctrine to know about. The answer to anxiety with our words is that the Spirit speaks through us. Verse 22, the second thing the Spirit does, and it's kind of a, it's, um, it's uh, indirect. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, this is not a bootstrap verse. Hey, grind it out, and if you can make it all the way, God will say, good job, and you're in. No, we know from Scripture that, that from the beginning of our salvation to the end of our salvation is guided. It's secured. It's bolstered by something. Look at this, Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of what? The Holy 
Spirit. Our salvation begins with the Holy Spirit. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that He who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Our, our salvation, who we are in Christ, is, is sustained by the Holy Spirit. And look at this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom we are sealed for the day of redemption. Who carries us all the way to the finish line? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And so where does courage come from? Where does motivation come from? Where does comfort come from? It's bolstered by the Holy Spirit, beginning, middle, and end. That's the answer. It's not from our circumstances or what you know or what you might be able to, to weave in, in words. No, it comes from the fact that you are hugged tight, surrounded, enveloped by the Spirit. Next, as we keep traveling through the passage, we see God the Father appear. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body is the command, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. My goodness. Okay, listen, Jesus is saying we shouldn't misplace our fear. Why fear men? They can, okay, they can kill you. That's pretty serious, but guess what? God can not only kill you, he can also destroy you in hell. He's drawing the, uh, attention to the fact that we don't understand what is really actually good to fear. Now, this would be terrifying if it weren't for the next two verses. Yes, God is creator, sustainer, he is sovereign, but look at this, verses 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. For those of us in our late 30s and male, this gets easier for God every year, so Lord, you're welcome. Uh, he has, then he says, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So what is this terrifying truth that God can kill and destroy in hell couched in His love for His children? His love for His children. Jesus takes something insignificant, buying a couple sparrows for a penny. And He says, if God cares about sparrows, He most certainly cares about you. So the fear of God couched in the care of the Father for His children gives us courage, gives us comfort, gives us motivation. And lastly, we come to verses 32 and 33, God the Son. So look at this. He says in verse 32, Everyone who acknowledges me, Jesus speaking, before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And so there's two parts here. The first part is talking about our relationship to the Son. Romans 10, 9-10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that what? Jesus is Lord. That means Master. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one con confesses and is saved. What is Jesus saying in verse 32? You simply have to acknowledge Me. Publicly profess Me. Say, I'm with Jesus. I'm with Jesus. I didn't do it. I'm not, I didn't earn it. I, I'm not good enough or handsome enough or any of these things enough to do it. I'm with Jesus. My hope is in Jesus. And that, that profession of faith, what does it do? It connects us, unifies us with Jesus Christ. It connects us there. And why is that important? It's important because of the second part of this verse. I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Our relationship with the Son turns into a relationship with the Father because we are connected to Christ and He is connected to God. 
Our connection to Christ is what connects us to the Father. So how can God accept a worthless sinner like Ransom Douglas Kent? How can He accept me as a child because I lay my hope on Jesus Christ? I am accepted in the sight of God on the word and advocacy of His precious Son. And that's it. That's it. There's no resume that comes with it. There's no link to all the things that I have done. There's no medals. It's me, a sinner, a man whose heart hates God at its base level, who is trusting in Jesus Christ, and then I am given an acknowledgement to God the Father through that relationship. So what should we take away from a passage like this? Well, if you look at the passage, what's the only comfort? What's the only source of courage? What's the only motivation we find in these verses? It's the Trinity. And so, if we take that truth and apply it to our lives, here's the truth we can learn. The only comfort, the only courage we can find, the only motivation we can have in our lives is the same thing, the Trinity. That's it. That's all we have. And then we have verse 33, which can be uncomfortable. Jesus says, but whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And I was thinking this week about uh, how some in, in, in times past, and even times present, use fear to cause people to think that they need Jesus. And, and that's not what I'm doing here. And in fact, I was thinking Jesus doesn't use fear. Jesus uses facts. <laughs> Jesus uses facts. To, he, he is being very plain about what is reality. And so listen to this fact. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This verse is not saying you don't have what it takes. It's not saying, hey, you're less than. It's not saying anything like that. It's not saying, hey, you lack understanding or you're a helpless case. This verse is simply saying, Jesus saying, I am the only way to be saved. And so if you believe in me, if you believe in me, you have faith in me, that will happen. I will acknowledge you to my Father, but if you refuse to acknowledge me, there's only one way that turns out. I'm compelled to share this quote from John Calvin. I've been trying to reread uh, some of his institutes recently, and he said this as I was reading this week. I'll try to read nice and slow. I think it's profound. Consequently, everyone acting as his or her own advocate is open to the false idea that man is competent in and of himself to lead a good and happy life. Nevertheless, any teaching which urges man to trust in himself is merely a deception. So great a deception indeed that whoever believes it is destroyed by it. That's what Jesus is getting to. If we trust in ourselves, if we trust in man, if we refuse to bend our knee to Jesus as master, that is a path that leads to only one place, destruction. And so Christian and non-Christian alike, here's what we need to do from a passage like this, we need to stop trusting in ourselves. We need to stop trusting in men. Stop trusting in the things we put our trust in. We stop trusting in our circumstances or our future. And instead, we need to turn to real comfort, real courage, real motivation. That which is truly reliable. And what is that? The love of the Father, the rescue of the Son, and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Lord, there's a lot of information here, and I pray that our minds will cut through it and we will walk away with the gem that you need us to have. 
Pray, Lord, for myself. I am a disciple with issues. I fear. I hide. I trust the wrong things. Anew this year in, in 2021, remind me of the Trinity. Remind me of the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God. Remind me of His love for us. Remind me that I am only rescued, not by my good work, even as a pastor. I'm not rescued by my good work as a father or a son or, or any of those roles as a citizen of my country. No, I am rescued simply by Jesus Christ who died for me. And, oh Father, I pray for the Reformed Church as a whole that we would go to the Holy Spirit. We need it. It's our guide, our sustainer, the starter and the finisher of our faith. We need it. I pray that Grace Presbyterian Church gets a taste of relying on the Spirit and working in the Spirit, and we don't go back. May we add to our knowledge prayer, and dependence on the power of the Spirit. Thank you for the opportunity to share these words this morning. I pray you'd be with us as we finish this worship and move into a time of an exciting announcement for the future of our church. And I just pray, God, you'd be with us in our words. Thank you for all who have joined us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.